Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from Brooklyn, New York, and Cambridge, England. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, and please enjoy the show. For me, growing up in Florida, it just kind of fills up your senses. And when I see those signals of certain types of trees, like these live oaks, these amazing centuries-old trees that are just covered in in bromeliads and all these epiphytes, these plants growing on top of plants, and then with Spanish moss just kind of, you know, waving the wind, I don't know how to describe it other than to say I just feel this immense sense of homecoming and a sense of belonging. Salty tears in the humid skies, the sticky heat of Florida. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with singer-songwriter Ukulele Chanteuse and avid apartment gardener MXM Tune about her song, Florida. MXM Tune got her start self-releasing songs she recorded in her parents' guest bedroom in 2017, and then quickly attracted hundreds of millions of listeners to her music around the world through YouTube and social media. Also joining us is ethnobotanist Dr. Cassandra Quave. Dr. Quave is the author of 2021's The Plant Hunter, a scientist's quest for nature's next medicines. The book details Dr. Quave's painstaking work in the Florida Everglades, the Amazon, and across the globe as she investigates indigenous wisdom and plant matter alike. The book also tells the incredible story of Cassandra's resilience in the face of multiple health battles, including a leg amputation when she was three, and recurring life-threatening infections that inspire much of her research today. The title of today's episode on the podcast is Florida, Hunting for Plant Medicine in the Everglades. Hello, Maya and Cassandra. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) Thank you. So, Maya, it is often the case that when journalists talk about your career, um, they often make mention of your social media savvy. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Yes, that is very fair to say. (laughs) Okay. Well, one thing that really struck me and resonated with me is you said there's a a profile New York Times did a couple years ago. You said, I have never approached the internet as a branding tool. It was always a place of self-expression. And when it became this thing where I had to understand that I am the brand, that was really confusing. So here you are, you're deeper in your career, you're selling out shows around the world. Where are you at now with your relationship to the internet? Not much farther along, if I'm being completely honest with you. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's a weird thing. I'm still growing up. I just turned, oh, I'm turning 22 in like a week and a half or so. And I'm still like a young person. I feel like a kid. And I think, you know, the internet has still always kind of been this tool of being able to figure out how to connect with people and share myself online. Um, It's still something that I'm like, I I still can't really fully grapple it the way that other people might look at it in the same way that like being a branding tool for, you know, being online. It's it's a weird thing. (laughs) Well, that's great. I mean, I think that that probably works to your advantage. And I know like for me, I love I love making this show, but, you know, I'm in my mid 40s. And 
it's just social media for me is such a chore. You know what I mean? Yes, I can also see it from your perspective. It's hard. It's like this, it feels so ingrained into what we need to do on a day-to-day basis now in order to kind of accomplish whatever we're setting out to do. It's a weird thing to kind of grapple with the level of involvement we need to have with being on online all the time. And engaged, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for me? Oh my goodness. Be offline if you can also yeah. do it. I think, you know, I feel like people go in with this crazy like kind of grind mindset when it comes to social media of just feeling mm-hmm. like especially like people within my generation of like Gen Zers being online. It's just everybody is online all the time. And I think we sometimes forget about the importance of being able to have those spaces offline too and those connection points with people in our lives. My biggest piece of advice is the most straightforward thing ever. It's just turning off your phone. That's really what it comes down to. Okay, fair enough. Well, I appreciate (laughs) that. So we've asked you here today to talk about your song, Florida. Could you tell us a little bit about it and how it came together? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I think music has always kind of played a part in allowing me to tell really pivotal pieces of my life and experiences that I've had. And Florida was a song that was written for my grandfather about his passing in 2020 and kind of understanding what that was like and the last visit I had out to see him, which was in Northport, Florida, in the summer of like quarantine happening and the pandemic was going on. And he was on his second battle of leukemia and kind of understanding, you know, what is that experience like to visit a family member when they're on their deathbed and like trying to really build those memories up? And he was also celebrating his birthday. And so I think it was special for me to be able to a year later kind of approach writing a song about what that was like and, you know, sharing my experience with people and also being able to kind of process it myself, I think, for the first time, because it's loss is something that's so hard. And I think, you know, terminal illness is also a very complicated kind of topic to broach and to speak about too. So it's really about him and his legacy and his life and the emotions that I was feeling at that time. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. The thing for me, the, the first few lines are so incredibly evocative and they give such a strong sense of place. Mm. Let me just read the lyrics that salty tears in the humid skies, the sticky heat of Florida, summer nights in mid July, a trip that's way too far to drive. Mm. And I just feel like you really capture what a physical experience it is to be in that climate. Yeah. When you cross over from Georgia, even on I-95, it's like, uh-huh. you know it. You know it's what I mean? so hot there. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, I grew up in California where there's no humidity at all. And so I would visit my grandparents down in Florida and just be like sweating the entire time sitting on their like patio and brutal heat and brutal humidity. Um, I feel like that is such a part of the Florida experience is kind of being in the air and understanding like, oh my gosh, it's like swimming. <laughs> it's like a bath. Yeah, exactly. I love that line of the sticky heat because for me as a kid growing up in Florida, I always felt like it was like a warm, wet blanket <laughs> get wrapped up in. It was very comforting to me. <laughs> That's another way of looking at it. <laughs> I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I think, you know, I'm still learning how to. <laughs> So do you care to share any other impressions of the, the natural landscape of the state besides the um, the humid air? I think, you know, Florida itself is this crazy landscape of like animals and plants that I just was not familiar with growing up being in California. I think it felt like this other world entirely, like watching Avatar for the first time and being like, this is crazy and this entire world and everything feels almost similar to the way that I felt when I was first visiting Florida to visit my grandparents and kind of have like Mm. a memory of it. 
it just felt like crazy that I could look outside and then suddenly there'd be like a bobcat next to the patio. Like it was, <laughs> it was terrifying. I think too, just to think about it. It just felt like, um, like there are no laws in Florida, no rules, no like concept of what's going to happen. And it was really exciting. So I think for me, it felt like transporting into a different universe every single time I would go there. And um, I think still it has that same feeling of wonder and kind of excitement when I look outside and I get to see something that I was never familiar with growing up. And I think the like childlike kind of feelings that I hold are still really important to kind of understanding my relationship with the state and going there yeah whether you're going from the bay area or new york it is just like such a stark contrast yeah. i mean and even just geographically the way that it's just kind of like hanging by a thread from the the rest of the the landmass mm-hmm. just kind of it also doesn't help that you see like all these sensational news stories of florida man yeah, like Florida men. I think you could look up your birthday with Florida man at yeah. the end and figure out which Florida man is yours. <laughs> Florida man that slings an alligator into a into a, a convenience store. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cassandra, I won't ask you to defend your state on that score. You know, I'd, I'd ask you for your impressions of the state, but I can do one better and also read from the book. You say, and this is in the beginning of the book, you're talking about doing field study in Florida. And you say, at first, the dense pine and saw palmetto scrubland, salty mangroves and swampy everglade terrains looked like a homogenous sea of green to me, very familiar yet indistinct. But with time, I came to see the landscape in totally different ways. So after studying the plant life there for many years, how do you see it? I think it really goes in line with Maya's sense of of place because, you know, I live in Georgia now. And when I drive down to Florida, you know, you get close to that Georgia-Florida border and then you start to see these beautiful oaks that have these tendrils of, of Spanish moss that are kind of flying in the wind and just kind of swaying and for me, that's just a, such a homecoming welcome. It's like this sign of like, I'm back, I'm home. And it really wasn't until graduate school when I started to learn something about botany that I began to recognize those species. And <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing, but like I talk to my plants, like the ones that I recognize and know, I like, you know, hello, beautiful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever the Latin name is. It's like, you know, it's, it's great to see you and you're looking so nice. And it's just, for me, it's it's this amazing connection that you can build to the land. And I think that's just an incredibly special way to view the world. And you just feel so much more connected to that space. And for me, Florida will always be a very special place. Do you talk to your plants, Maya? Yes. I am so glad that there is another mind in this chat that also does the exact same thing as me. I feel like there's something therapeutic about it. I I got into plants at the beginning of the pandemic and I have really like loved the experience of being able to take care of something and watch it grow. I think that there's like a really wonderful reminder in there that life still exists outside of ourselves, even when we struggle to kind of feel it or see it. And um, you know, I didn't get to go outside a lot. Obviously, none of us did. And I live now in New York and it's a very urban environment and there's really great public parks here. But I think it was really nice to be able to bring greenery that I missed from places like the Bay Area or Florida and have that in my home. And I do talk to them because I talk to everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who takes care of them when you're on tour? 
I actually, for the most part, try to get plants that don't require a lot of upkeep just because I think it's easier for me to take care of them. So I love succulents. I love ZZ plants. I think those are are great plants to have because if I am gone for a month, they still survive. (laughs) They can hang. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the plants, Cassie, that I wanted to talk to you about because it figures so largely into your work and is uh, perhaps not native to Florida, but is is there now, and that's the Brazilian pepper tree. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe it for us and its properties? If you ask any Floridian what the most hated plant is in Florida, most <laughs> will answer the Brazilian pepper tree because it's this horrible invasive weed that clogs up these big ditches throughout the state. But its origins are in Brazil or in South America, where it's served as an incredible source of medicine for people for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was brought to Florida as an ornamental plant. It's also known as the Christmas berry plant. It has these amazing, beautiful, dark green leaves and bright, bright, ruby red fruits that are usually in fruit around Thanksgiving and going into Christmas, hence the name Christmas berry. And if you crush the plant, if you crush it in your hands and kind of smell the leaves, it smells like pepper. It's very pungent. I got interested in it because of its history of use in traditional medicine. It's been used to treat all kinds of different infections. And we were the first group to identify some really potent inhibitors of these bacterial toxins that are created by staph. And I think of staph bacteria as kind of my lifelong nemesis because <laughs> I had this life-threatening infection as a kid after I had to have my leg amputated. I almost died from a staph infection. And so, yeah, the pepper tree is so many things to me because it's a source of these amazing compounds, but it's also this other element of Florida that's kind of this unwanted pest, but it has so much value. And I'm like, what if we stopped hating this plant and started using it, you know, for medicine? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it represents healing. It represents the underdog. Here's something that nobody likes, but actually has these amazing uses. And when people think of weeds, often in this kind of negative context, when I think of a weed, I'm thinking of it as, you know, that's a really successful plant. Right, yeah. (laughs) It's learned how to survive in this other environment. And why is that? It's often because it has some really amazing chemistry. And we can put that chemistry to good use to help people battle these types of infections. I know that a lot of your research relies on indigenous wisdom. Could you talk a bit about how you navigate that as a Western scientist and how you research it? Wherever humans have existed on Earth, whether it's in Brazil or in Alaska or in Russia or wherever in the world, there's been this very long tradition of traditional medicine. This is wisdom that's passed down from generation to generation. And it's it's really based on a lot of trial and error. This is not just random chance. This is the result of generations of healers and people that are trying different plants in their environment, seeing what works and passing it on to the next generation. We have around 374,000 species of plants on earth. And out of those, mm-hmm. almost 9% of all plant life has been used in some way for medicine. Wow. The tragedy, though, is that when you look at the scientific investigation of those plants that have been used for centuries, if not millennia, for medicine, the majority of those have never entered an actual scientific laboratory. We don't know what their potential is. We haven't explored their ability to really be transformed into medicines that could help people across the globe. And that's what really makes me passionate because it is, in a way, it is kind of like space exploration because this is the unknown territory. 
And there's so much to be learned yeah. from them. And you wear so many different hats. It's such a multidisciplinary endeavor because you're you're part chemist, you're part botanist, but you're also part anthropologist. So if you travel somewhere, maybe not uh, the Everglades, but if you're in the Amazon or I know you do a lot of work in Albania, how do you go about gathering information about what is used in traditional medicine in, in those respective cultures? I was I was just in Albania a few days ago and in Kosovo leading an expedition across the mountains in the Haas region. And I'll tell you, it's, it's shocking to me how quickly a lot of knowledge is being lost. Mm. Some of the places that I was at 10 years ago, as the elders have passed on, they're no longer practicing many of these traditions. And so this is something there's a there's an incredible urgency to preserve these traditions as best we can before they're lost forever. But when it comes to undertaking this kind of research, I mean, ethics are at the forefront. Collaboration mm-hmm. with local scientists is at the forefront. I put a lot of effort into something known as research capacity building because In some of the places where you have the greatest biodiversity in the world, you often have the worst kind of scientific infrastructure. They don't have access to the equipment that we have here in the U.S., or they don't have access to the training. And so a lot of things that we do are really to help students and help local scientists to not only gain the training that can help them to better investigate the amazing biodiversity they have around them, but also to help them get the funds through initiatives like the PEER program or USAID so they can build out their own labs. And we've done this very successfully in Kosovo where we've built out a whole new microbiology lab. We've helped them um, acquire a new HPLC, which is a kind of chemistry tool to allow them to like really investigate the chemical composition of these plants. And so that's kind of the model I'm trying to follow as we work around the globe. And I have collaborators where we're kind of, we have expeditions on hold until we can raise the money. Um, because we really want this to be a true collaboration where they can build up their research infrastructure um, and also the world can benefit from those discoveries. You talk about approaching this with sensitivity. And I came across something in the end of your book I wasn't familiar with, which was the Nagoya Protocol. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Nagoya Protocol is part of the Convention on Biological Diversity. And the the basic premise here, this is a United Nations initiative. The premise here is that If you think about historically how a lot of these discoveries happened, it was very much under a colonial mindset. If we think about like coffee or opiates or all of these medicines that we take for granted today, those were basically taken from different cultures without compensation to the indigenous peoples that initially discovered them. And so what the Nagoya Protocol does is it sets up guidelines to ensure that there's not a kind of taking without consideration of local partners and to ensure that you have equitable access and benefit sharing. And I mean, none of my discoveries so far have become blockbuster drugs. I'm not a billionaire (laughs) pharmaceutical guru. (laughs) So I have to think about realistically, what can I do today as an academic scientist to help local communities and help local scientists through these kinds of, of collaborative endeavors? And then should anything eventually become successful as a commercialized drug, that there are guarantees in place and, and principles in place that would ensure that they also reap some of that benefit. And that's kind of what the Nagoya Protocol is all about. Okay. Maya, I'm assuming neither you nor I know much about organic chemistry. <laughs> I didn't even go to college. So yeah, yeah. no, I don't know much. 
<laughs> okay. Well, because that I know is like one of the most daunting yeah. subjects. And mm-hmm. like I said earlier, I've learned from Cassandra's book, that is something that she has to know a lot about. So Cassie, could you give us a little bit of a primer in organic chemistry or just kind of what our plant chemistry in general? Yeah, sure. At some point, I don't know how to get back to this, but in the book I write about finding comfort in in nature after my grandmother died. Yeah, go for it right now. Okay. What really brought me comfort is just reconnecting to the earth. I mean, there was this moment where I'm in my little suburban neighborhood <laughs> and I lie down in the grass and I just envision these great trees just reaching out to embrace me. And that brought me so much comfort. And I think there's something about nature that can bring us comfort. And that's what I really felt in your in your song as well. Absolutely. I think for me, one of the reasons I actually even got into plants, I think that the timing of me getting into plants lined up with the passing of my grandfather for the very first time. And I think it was really necessary for me to have this reminder that time still moves on and things can grow despite this like inner feeling of loss and mourning and grief. And um, so many of my plants, I think, have have been with me for the last two years of like, you know, processing his passing and and I've been watching them grow and I've watched them get longer and, and my pothos have gotten longer. They've grown so many new leaves or my ZZ plant has gotten so much taller. And to have these small reminders that, you know, life can still thrive amongst those feelings of not necessarily thinking that it's possible and feeling stuck in that grief. Um, but, you know, it's so nice to hear, I think, that universal experience of being able to lean on wildlife and nature amidst these hard moments that we find ourselves facing in life. Um, but I'm so sorry to hear about your grandmother and I just, I feel it so deeply and I'm, you know, so grateful that there's another person out there that can understand that and um, <laughs> went through it. Yeah, I think so many people went through it and I think it's just, it's, it's an unusual time is that we were all dealing with that. Mm-hmm. And I love it when when music can touch us and bring us together in this common shared experience. And I mean, that's just such an incredible thing that you can bring to people. And I, I, I don't know, I just want to say that's really great that no, you're able to thank do that. You. I mean, I think it's so, there's so many aspects of like the human experience that are so universal. And I feel like that connection we have even to our surroundings. And I couldn't write music without kind of my understanding of my environment and wildlife has been a huge part of that i mean that's what contributed to writing florida so clearly like minds (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) yeah your music is often described as like you have a very profound ability to connect with people emotionally and i and i think that's speaks to how you were you know you so quickly blew up and attracted all these fans just with kind of direct one-to-one connections i think we all have more in common than we think. And I I feel like I've understood that from a very young age. And, you know, I am, I feel lucky that I can kind of tap into that and and connect with people. And also to have these moments too, where I get to like sit down and have a conversation with, you know, someone who is an expert on something I could never have imagined ever like learning about, but to be able to sit down and gain pieces of knowledge and think about it in relationship to my own life. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's really cool that we can have these moments of community um, with so many different people we might not have ever crossed paths with. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point is that <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you know, is that 
it's a seemingly disparate connection mm-hmm. between you, a musician, and Cassandra, an ethnobotanist. But it's like you know, there's so many, so many connections that are ready to be made, even if they're seemingly thin. And I had actually heard recently this really staggering statistic, mm. which is that. Americans, regardless of their background, how they identify politically, we share values and aspirations to a degree of about 90%. Wow. You know? That's wild. Yeah. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and not surprising. So well, This is I, the thing I've seen like with my field work. People mm-hmm. all over the world, like people are people. Everyone wants those connections with other humans. They want those connections with their land, with the plants, with the environment, with the animals that they encounter. I mean, this is the common <laughs> commonality among humanity. And it's like no matter what language you speak or what religion you ascribe to, we all share that. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, forgive me if this is a spoiler for your book, Cassie, but what struck me most is that you reveal towards the end that your birth defect was likely the result of your father's exposure to Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. I just want to know, at what, at what point in your career as a, a botanist did you find that out? I mean, I became more aware of it the more I studied kind of science and different environmental exposures and the effects they have on on child development. That's always been the big question for me mm. was how this, like, you know, series of birth defects occurred because I was really worried about having kids of my own. So like even in college, well before I ever met my husband, like I was worried, like, will this be passed on to my children? Like, what can I learn about this? What was the cause of this? Is this something that I'm going to pass on or not? Um, And I think, you know, as I, as I, as the years went by and I've worked in areas where war has played a prominent place in, in recent history, it's just, I've gained more perspective on just how horrific it can be and how the consequences of war and conflict last much longer mm-hmm. than the actual conflict itself. Mm. And, um, you know, again, just being back in the Balkans, I mean, I'm talking with people about medicinal plants, but I'm also talking about their lives. And many of these people have suffered like incredible loss of their family members, of their homes, of their animals, of their ways of living, of their ways of agriculture. It was just all gone. Mm. And knowing what's happening today in Ukraine, it's just, it's really, it's really hard to sit by and watch that happening over Mm. and over again. I feel like history continues to repeat itself and we don't know what the consequences are going to be for the children of that generation that do emerge after this. I mean, not just from the war, but also from the environmental toxins that are introduced into those environments. It just blew my mind, though. There's something, I don't know if this is the right word to describe it, but there's almost like a a poetry in the course your life has taken that like here was this toxin that was used to kill plants and trees on an industrial scale. And here you are using your life and energy to yeah. find the healing properties of plants and protect them. It's funny how life turns out. I mean, as a kid, I never thought to myself, I'm going to grow up to be an ethnobotanist. I didn't even know what anthropology was as a mm-hmm. kid. I mean, life, you know, life's path takes you in certain directions. I'm sure with Maya, too, it's like, I don't know if you ever imagined that you would be where you would be today. Things kind of happen and you go with it and you learn from it and it continues to evolve. And I think that's the amazing thing about you know the common human experience. You don't know where things are going to lead you. Um, but it, there is a bit of poetry in where my path has taken me, I guess. Yeah, it's so wild. So I 
was really interested and excited to talk with you about your like perspective on like medicinal plants just because I grew up I'm half Chinese and so a lot of Eastern medicine was something that was a part of my life and Mm -hmm. I think it always has been this kind of question of like you know Western medicine versus Eastern medicine and kind of the validity of sort of treatment and cures and I I don't know it's complicated I don't know if I have anything sort of like concrete or thought through but I mean I, I am somebody that has you know, I lost my grandmother last year to colon cancer as well and kind of cancer and terminal illness and thinking about, you know, in relationship to my culture and like what sort of medicine was introduced and all these things. I feel like I've always had this kind of presentation of Western and Eastern medicine in opposition of each other and kind of these two fighting forces of like, this one is not valid or this one is. And I'm so like fascinated by your work and kind of hearing this kind of bridge that you've built between both worlds of looking at plants and their medicinal properties, but also being someone who's an academic and kind of understanding the Western world and viewpoint of medicine. How has it been in kind of the process of understanding both and and thinking about, you know, as someone I think like who was presented as those being two polar opposites, like how do they work together? And from your perspective, do you feel like they're kind of slowly walking towards one another instead of going farther and farther away? Yeah, I love that you asked this question because it is weird how we have this opposition mindset yeah. <laughs> about traditional medicine and quote unquote modern medicine. The reality is these are not opposing forces. The reality is, is that modern medicine as we know it today was built on the knowledge of traditional medicine. If you think about some of our most important therapies for cancer, A lot of those were discovered in plants originally. Today, we may produce those in a factory setting through complicated chemical synthesis pathways, but the actual molecular blueprints that are used to build those molecules are then produced and turned into pills. In many Mm. cases, it started with a plant compound. And so that's one of the, the goals of my book, too, is really trying to spell that myth that these are opposing forces. In fact, we are constantly evolving in our system of medicine. And, you know, whether it's for pain, you think about aspirin. If you've ever had a surgery, like I've had many, many surgeries, but I'm thinking I can't imagine what the pain of post-op recovery would have mm-hmm. been like without morphine. It would have been horrific. And that's thanks, to again, to a plant compound. I have friends that have been treated for breast cancer with things like Taxol, right? <laughs> Which is from this amazing yew tree. And I'm a big tree hugger. I'm an unabashed tree hugger. I like, I hug trees when I see it, especially really old trees. I'm like, thank you for your gifts of these amazing chemicals that have saved lives. You know, so I think we have to change that mindset again through education and helping the public to understand where our medicines come from. One of the recent Nobel Prizes for the treatment of malaria was this amazing tradition that came out of traditional Chinese medicine. Mm. And this scientist was looking for anti-malarials. She actually went back to this centuries years old text and found that the way to produce the best medicine for, for malaria was to take this wormwood plant and crush it in room temperature water. And in a typical chemistry lab, when we're isolating plant compounds, we usually heat them or we're putting them into alcohol or very strong solvents. But she read this and said, well, I'm going to try and prepare it the traditional way. Mm. And lo and behold, that eventually became the discovery of artemisinin, which has saved 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people's lives across the globe. And she won the Nobel Prize for that a few years ago. So we have to do more, I think, to show Mm -hmm. people that these are not opposing forces. We benefit from the knowledge that perhaps they don't wear white lab coats, right? (laughs) Or they're not necessarily doing all these experiments in a laboratory setting, but traditional healers and the knowledge keepers, the midwives, the herb women, the people that use this and practice this and keep this knowledge going, they have made tremendous contributions to medicine as we know it today. And I'm continuously learning from them. I mean, I consider some of the healers I've worked with as important, if not more important than some of the renowned scholars I've studied under in a, in a university setting, because they really have this this really firm grasp on understanding how these very complex remedies work. And what I'm trying to do is is communicate that to the public, but also in a scientific setting is to really uncover what are the mechanisms mm-hmm. behind how these work and bring that knowledge back to communities as wow. well. Thank you for sharing. That's so insightful and really exciting to hear. I think, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a mixed race kid. And so I grew up with kind of like so many different conversations around like my identities, but also kind of thinking about it from the perspective of being really straight in the middle of like American media and like conversations around like modern medicine and then also being in between like the traditional medicine conversations where my mom would give me a pill of who knows what Hmm. herbs to tell me that it was going to make me feel better after I had a cold (laughs) and being like which one do I supposed to take am I supposed to take emergency or am I supposed to have like yin chow and like these kind of you know being in the opposition of both things I think it's really fascinating to hear like how your work directly correlates to kind of what I would have loved to hear growing up of just thinking that both of those are working in tandem with each other to kind of provide us an answer and solution and that one isn't more important than the other. It's about kind of how they function together and how one is also based after a lot of history and like tradition. So that's really exciting. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and the reality is too, billions of people across the globe rely on plants as their main source of medicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, billions. I think we owe it to them to really do what we can in modern science to really understand their safety and efficacy and ensure that they have access to the medicines that they need mm. from these plants. Yeah. What was that figure you had in your book? You said, because what, a world population is what, 8 billion now? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but probably <laughs> something <population> like that. <laughs> and it's something like 50% of that depends on plant medicine exclusively for their health care, right? Wow. Yeah. The, I think the stats are something like 70 to 95% of people living in developing countries um, that are economically disadvantaged rely primarily on plants as their form of medicine. And this is where climate change comes into play, too, because, you know, many of these natural resources are becoming harder and harder to find. And again, I saw this when I was just last week in in the Balkans, some of the medicinal plants that people would regularly collect that were available in abundance, they're getting harder and harder to find. And part of that is because of collection for sale into like the medicinal plant trade. Um, But part of it is also there's changes in the environment, especially with these high kind of mountain plants, because as we have a more and more, you know, warm climate, these plants are kind of migrating in a way up these mountains. And after a while, you run out of mountain. And what happens to those plants and what happens Mm. to those people that rely on those plants as their main Mm. source of medicine? So, I mean, part of my work is very much driven on 
this basis of there's an urgency because we are losing not only the knowledge of how these plants are, are, are used, but we're also losing the plants themselves. Um, and we have to do more on a global scale to save these traditions and to save these species before we lose our chance. Because we don't know what the next COVID-19 is going to be. Where are we going to find the cures of the future if we deplete all of our natural resources? Amen. Could you tell us a little bit about what you were just doing on this recent trip? Yeah, I was working across Albania and Kosovo with a really fabulous team of local scientists and students and one of my friends who's a National Geographic explorer. A lot of really amazing women on this trip, which was like a lot of fun um, to kind of encourage some of these female scientists also because there's a lot of there's a lot of mm. barriers they have to face. And so just having someone there tell me you can do this and we're doing this and you're doing great. It's like it's, it's really powerful. Um, and we were there documenting, you know, the trade of wild medicinal plants. We were documenting different food traditions, the uses of plants as medicine, but also the uses of plants in traditional housing. I mean, there's this beautiful story around rye. Have you ever had rye bread? Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe at some point, right? Well, there's this amazing kind of rye that grows there that's uh, it's absurdly long. It's a very tall rye that's grown. And you're thinking, why would... Why would they select this plant that grows very tall just to harvest the grain? But historically, they grew this very special land race of rye because they would use it in their roofing. So they'd make traditional houses with this rye kind of thatch roofing. They would also use it to provide padding for the saddles for their horses. And then they would harvest the grain to make bread and also to feed their animals. So all these amazing uses locked up with this very special variety of rye. And what we saw, unfortunately, on this trip is that fewer and fewer people are growing this rye because they're moving to metal or tile roofs. And it was just such an amazing experience for me to see, like, this is a generation or generations of knowledge is being lost in my lifespan. You know, in the 10 years since I've been there, there's been so much change and I'm seeing it. It's not like something that's happening over centuries. It's happening very quickly. And so it's really critical that we really preserve that information and the species itself. So part of your work includes cataloging species, you know, when you're in a foreign country and leaving them with some sort of volume. Is that right? Yeah. And we collect something known as herbarium specimens. So when someone thinks of an herbarium, often the word <laughs> makes the people think about like lush greenhouses and it's not a lush greenhouse. These are like dried plants that are glued to paper <laughs> So I'm a curator of the herbarium at Emory, which is basically I have a museum of dead plants. I'm very good at finding and killing plants and preserving them for like wow. 500 years. That's <laughs> what I'm good at. Right? Um, I'm not, to be completely truthful and honest, I am not the best caretaker of houseplants. <laughs> if if my husband didn't look after them, I would have nothing but dead plants in our house. Mm. So he's really the he's really the one that has the green thumb. I have the brown thumb, that, like kills everything <laughs> and sticks it on paper. So. But these catalogs are really important because they document where a plant has been found at a certain point in time, what other species were found around it, and it serves as a record of life, both on a temporal scale and a spatial scale. And some of the older cerberia that exist in Europe go back five or six hundred years. And so the things that we collect today, it's a really powerful thing as a scientist. Not many scientists can say this, that the work they're doing today that scientists 500 years from now will still be using the materials that I create today or that my students create. 
And so I always tell my students, you know, be really careful as you're making this specimen because you never know <laughs> half a millennium away from now, some scientists may be really, really relying on, on how well you preserve this thing. That's bananas. That is really cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Maya, Cassie, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for it's having us. It's been so cool. Oh my gosh, no, thank, thank you, you, Cassie. Maya. Thank you, Matt. This is super, yeah. super cool. <laughs> Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Our mix engineer is Lou Carlozo. Social media manager is Bailey Constas. And our digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Andy Cross at Zoo Audio in Cambridge for his help with today's episode. If you like today's show, please tell a friend about us and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>